Hey, folks. In this interview, I sit down with Andrew D. Bernstein. Andrew is the senior official photographer for the NBA, also known as the National Basketball Association. Andrew collaborated with celebrated NBA player Kobe Bryant on a new book called The Mamba Mentality, How I Play. I think you're going to find this interview both an insightful look into the mind of an accomplished sports photographer, as well as a look into the mind of one of the greatest basketball players of all time. This is Twit. All right. I'm here with Andrew D. Bernstein. He is... I don't know how to put this. This is this is uh, this is an honor. Not that all of my interviews aren't honors, but this one is a distinct honor uh, because this guy, as you will find out, uh, is in the uh, the NBA Hall of Fame for his work. Um, he's worked with Kobe Bryant on this this amazing book that they have out right now that covers a number of things that we're going to talk about in this particular interview. So. Andrew D. Bernstein. Andrew D. Bernstein is here to sort of talk about their new book or his new book that he did with Kobe Bryant. It's called Mamba Mentality. And we're also going to talk about obsession and sort of how people of that ilk and his ilk rise to the level that they are at. So, Andrew, Andy, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm great, Frederick. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. It is we good. Got to... all the tech... We got through all the technology, so we're actually looking at each other somewhere. <laughs> I know. You know, I, I think that's like the that's the hot gold, the hot coals that Skype lays in front of us, so that right. to prove that the interview is worth it, it makes us yeah. you know jump through these hoops. <laughs> it is it is good to have you on here. This is this is going to be an exciting interview. Um, well, let's let's start off with sort of the you know, sort of the cocktail party elevator pitch uh, that you sort of regale people with in, in those those cool cocktail parties. Who is Andrew? <laughs> who are you? What do you do? Well, uh, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn who ended up uh, with a camera and somehow got in front of all these big time athletes for an entire career. Um, honestly, I, I started off, uh, you know, it was a 14 year old kid with a camera and uh, it began a lifelong uh, love um, obsession, I would say, for photography and specifically for sports photography. And as my career um, unfolded, uh, it became a little bit more narrow focused on basketball photography, NBA more, most specifically. But I, I do do quite a bit of other types of photography, including entertainment, uh, other sports such as hockey, soccer, um, been known to shoot a football game or two in my career. Um, but, um, basketball, of course, you know, is where I uh, kind of hang my hat. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been a great ride. I've been able to, um, uh, luckily be in the right place at the right time. I was very fortunate to come to LA in the beginning of the Showtime era. I transferred colleges from University of Massachusetts to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, and um, got hooked in with Sports Illustrated very early as an assistant. And uh, you know, I had some Brooklyn street smarts and some moxie, and a little, as we say uh, in Yiddish, some mention me. I was able to get my foot in the door with the Lakers and and the Kings in the Forum, and uh, that led to working with the NBA. I and became the Dodgers team photographer in 1984, which I did for 11 years. And um, 
I am now in my 37th year working as the senior official photographer for the NBA. That's fantastic. So, so suffice it to say, you know a little bit about photography. You know a little bit about sports photography. Yeah, right? yeah I, I, hope, I hope I do. I hope I do. Yeah. And you know, and you know a lot about Kobe Bryant. And you know, so I want to I want to talk about that. I want to I want to spend a significant amount of time on the book, but also want to spend some time on uh, sports photography itself and some of the lessons sure. that you've learned in your yeah. in your your storied career doing mm -hmm. that. Um, so let's let's start with the book. So uh, I have the book up here on Amazon now. It's called Kobe Bryant. The Mamba Mentality, and in very small type there, How I Play. Mm -hmm. That is, that's awesome. That needs to be in a, ma a master class, right? It's like how, how I play. Tell me about the book. What's the book? Who's the book for? Well, first and foremost, the subtitle needs to be um, really understood, okay? Because he didn't say in the subtitle how I played with an ED at the end. He said how I played. And as we know, the dude does no longer play basketball professionally, but he has taken the Mamba mentality off the court and into his private life and his work life. And it's a, a real um, sort of teaching tool for all of us, if, whether we're basketball fans, whether we play, whether we coach, um, whether we are just parents, um, doesn't matter about how to approach, um, I guess, an obsession with what you love and take it to a level far above what you, you yourself might not have thought possible. Yeah. So the Mamba mentality is truly a mindset that develop, that you need to develop to reach your potential and even further. And it, it's due to hard work. It's due to honing your process and your craft throughout your career or throughout your life. Um, but it can be it, the concept of ma the mama mentality can be brought into every area of life, work or um, family or personal. But how do you get be able, be more specific on that? Because you know that's the you know, we hear that all the time. Work hard and mm -hmm. you know find what you're good at and do more of that. Right. right. Uh, that, yeah. But uh, I, I have a feeling that this goes deeper than that. Like how from mm -hmm. To attain the level of success and the low level of notoriety that Kobe has attained, it couldn't mm -hmm. have just been, hey, fine, you like basketball, just do more basketball, right? right. What, what, take me a little bit deeper into that mindset of the Mamba mentality. Well, some of it has to do with um, sacrifice, um, understanding that that what your goal is. If your goal is to become the as great a basketball player as you can be. You don't have to be the next Kobe Bryant or the next LeBron or the next Magic or Jordan or Steph Curry. But you need to be you need to understand that it's a complete obsession. Okay. Mm -hmm. Your craft has to take over your life. <laughs> it becomes your life. Right. And everything that's involved to get you to that level that you set for yourself and that you that you might actually reach a higher level than you even realize you're capable of. Um, everything else has to kind of take a back seat while you're pursuing that that obsession. So, you know, he and I have been on the same page about this for our entire relationship. Um, you know, I have a family. He's got a family. Our families have to understand that, hey, you know what? When daddy's working, he's working. He's locked in. And um, you need to respect that. And 
private family time will come. Um, but, you know, when he's, for example, when Kobe's preparing for a game or rehabilitating an injury or um, breaking down an opponent, that has to be 100% of your attention in that moment. Yeah. So Kobe has a great quote where he says that if you're not obsessed with what you do, we don't speak the same language. I love that. And that's why he and I really bonded very early. I met him. He had just turned 18 years old. He was a fresh faced rookie, you know, and, you know, 18 years old, you're not supposed to know a lot of things about life. But he knew one thing and he knew where he wanted to get to. And that that was his obsession from day one, from the moment I met him. And I'm 20 years older than him. But I respected that. And I saw in him what I had at 18 and what I still had when I met him at 38. So um, that that stayed a um, sort of a bonding agent between us for all these years that we've known each other, worked together and traveled and now put this book together. You see, that's interesting. And that, and that, that resonates with me because there's, there's that whole idea that we always hear of the, the whole work life balance. Right. Uh -huh. And, yep. you know, you, it, and you, you've used the word obsession in, in this interview so far in a positive way, which mm -hmm. is normally used in a negative way. Oh, you're obsessed with this. You're obsessed with that. Right. right. It's right. it. And you're saying that obsession can be funneled into something positive so that you can go far beyond what normal people do. Sure. But, but is it at the sacrifice? Is that obsession and the and the relentless focus on your passion? Is mm -hmm. it at the sacrifice of the other things in your life? In other words, you know, we say that live that the life work balance. Yeah. Uh, in order to be obsessed with something, does the life work balance have to be work, and then you know, life gets the gets the table scraps at the end of the day? Well, I honestly don't believe in that concept of work life balance uh, when you're talking about the concept of the Mamba mentality. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can have uh, you can have balance in a way that respects your obsession with what you do. But um, specifically, my my family, and Kobe and I actually just talked about this the other day on my podcast, um, my family understands that I have like a revolving door of priorities, okay? <laughs> that, that when, you know, when I have a few days off or it's, it's vacation time, I'm, I'm, if you want to say obsessed, but I'm locked in with them, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about work or, or what I got to do. Maybe I'm thinking about it, but I'm not doing it. And, yeah. and when I'm doing my work and I'm traveling and I, you know, have very long days or I have a shoot to prepare for, or I'm putting a book together or whatever it may be. They understand that they have to kind of, I don't want to say take a back seat, but they sort of slide down that priority scale a little bit in that moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, Work-life balance is a great concept. I don't honestly really understand it because <laughs> yeah. for me, um, you know, then people talk, talk about, well, he's a workaholic. He just works all the time. But yes, people do work a lot because yeah. they want to provide for their families and they want to achieve and attain, um, you know, financially. But they're also people like me, like you, like a lot of people we know are driven. And where's that drive come from? Drive comes from never really being satisfied with where you're at. Yeah. And if that takes a sacrifice along the way, then you need to be with the right people that get that. <laughs> you know, the right partner. Your kids got to buy into it. 
you know, your business partners, whoever it is. So the great Peter Goober, who's one of my dearest friends and mentors, you know, Peter owns the Warriors. He owns the Dodgers. He, he's had over 50 movies um, be nominated for Academy Awards in his unbelievable career as, as a movie producer and studio owner. And he's become a great mentor of mine. And I said to him the other day, um, Peter, you know, you're in your 70s. You've achieved so much. Obviously, you're richer than you ever thought you would be. You know, he's as a kid. It's from like a scrappy background from Boston, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here he's got he's got the Dodgers playing one night. The Warriors are playing the next night. He's building two arenas at the same time. You know, the guy never stops. And uh, I said, is there ever a time when you're just going to, like, stop and kind of walk off into the sunset and enjoy life? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, you know what, Andy, I live by this, this saying that when the rabbit stops running, it becomes lunch. I love that. <laughs> and I really had to think about that because here's a guy, you know, he could very easily walk away, go out on his gigantic boat, you know, sail the world, whatever. Yeah. But he's still driven and he's still and he talks about in his book, Tell It to Win. By the way, I'm plugging his book because it's, everyone should read this book, Tell It to Win. Tell It to Win. Okay. Yes. Um, he, he talks about always chasing the next great thing. So that means that whatever you're chasing right now, there's something down the road that's even greater than that. Yeah. So I respect that and I live by that. It doesn't mean that I'm not satisfied with or or respectful of where I'm at or grateful. You know, you always have to be grateful mm -hmm. to the people who got you there and to your own effort and to your own sacrifice and kind of take stock in, in your own talent at some point, which I did, you know, recently with the Hall of Fame thing. But it does mean that it, it is a driving force and it can be and continue to be in your life. So full circle to Mamba mentality, Kobe is now taking that into his work life and as well as his family life. He's coaching his kid's 12-year-old basketball team, you know, with that same mentality. And the team is called the Mambas. <laughs> wow. wow. See, that, see, that's fantastic. And that's, that's refreshing to hear because you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, people call you a workaholic or people call people that, that are obsessed, quote, obsessed workaholics. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been called that. And yeah. And I take it as a term of endearment because I look at it from the standpoint of what's the alternative sure. to be where, you know, would you rather me be on the couch playing video games or, right. or working and trying to push, you know, leave the planet yeah. better than I found it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, a lot of people talked about Kobe um, being aloof and isolating himself from his team and, <clears throat> sort of sequestering himself and yes to all of the above because that got him to be the iconic athlete that he was mm -hmm. and he had to he had to have his private time he had to be able to meditate within the chaos of, of an NBA game or NBA finals or whatever he had to find a place to do that that was private and um, if people don't really understand that they don't get the concept of the Mamba mentality and yeah. that's why they should read our book by the way yeah. but no absolutely <laughs> he's very he very eloquently lays out the entire concept and what he did step by step through his process and his craft to achieve what he did as as the iconic athlete he was well being andrew being being so close to to kobe and and 
and um, you know, and even yourself being inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame, you know, the how how do you reconcile or how does one a person reconcile talent, you know, both in, in behind the camera or on mm -hmm. the court? How do you reconcile talent or just sort of genetic, genetically bestowed talent with hard work? Or is talent kind of the raw material, the coal, and the hard work is the heat that it takes to turn it into yeah. a diamond? How do, you, how do you reconcile that? Well, I mean, let's, let's look at the NBA, for example. Okay, you have about 400 players in the NBA, over 30 teams, right? So you, you had to have been great at what you do to get to be, you know, the one-tenth of one percent of people in the world who play basketball sure. end up playing for the NBA, in the NBA. You had to have been great. You had to have talent. That's a given. Um, and you, that talent had to be recognized by a scout or coach or whatever and, and, and cultivated by a parent um, and uh, or, you know, hopefully parent, but also a coach at a program, a college, high school, whatever. But then how do you explain the 5% of those 400 guys who are greater than great, who are the icons? How do you, how do you really explain that? Like they don't have like an extra chromosome or anything. Exactly. Yeah. So what took them from, from being great to iconic, right? So, Yes, a lot of it has to do with talent, but it also has to do with what's in your head and, and what, how, how obsessed you are with what you do and how you are re relentlessly going after greatness. Mm -hmm. And um, again, never being satisfied. Um, you know, Kobe was a great player coming in at 18 years old, but yet he had a difficult rookie year and he bricked uh, three clutch shots at the end of uh, this, the playoff series against Utah. And a lot of guys at his age might've just lost tremendous confidence and might've been a very damaging ego uh, hit. Um, he took it the other way. He said, you know what? I got to learn to shoot better. Yeah. And he talks about shooting literally a million jump shots that summer after his rookie year, a million. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, that tells me that, look, the, even setbacks and, and um, adversity, there has to be something that comes from that. And when he, the Lakers lost to the Celtics in 2008, which Kobe calls his, his pretty much his most disappointing and, and devastating moment as a professional basketball player, he was obsessed, and there's no other word to put it, uh, to describe it, he was obsessed with coming and beating that team. He would, would I, he'd still be playing now if they hadn't beaten them in 2010, yeah. because he he could not retire until he knew that he could beat the Celtics. Yeah, and he did two years later. Wow. See, <laughs> see, those are these are these are life lessons that we're talking about. You know, from yeah. from you know someone that's at that level and someone that's rubbing elbows with people that are at that level of mm -hmm. greatness that most of us aspire to, to, to get to. Yeah. So this is, thank yeah. you for doing this interview. This is, of course. This is inspiring. So, yeah. you know, and I, I look at this and some of the things you're saying are triggering memories or, or, or lines of questioning, right? So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of this and, you know, we're talking about genetics versus a hard work and all that and, and always changing, sort of always looking to the next 
thing, right? So right. How, how do you reconcile that part, always looking to the next thing with not, or with staying focused, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you got to focus the sun's beam to burn a hole in a piece of paper when you're a sure. kid. Otherwise, yeah. you're just going to warm it up and do nothing. Right. If, but if you're always looking towards the next thing, how do you make sure mm-hmm. that you're Kobe mm-hmm. or Andrew on this thing that you're working on right now? Well, it has everything to do with being present. So you're present in the moment that, um, you know, if you look at an NBA season, for example, I mean, from Kobe's perspective, he had to be present and focused every single game of an 82-game season in in order to get to the playoffs and then to get to the finals, right? So, you know, it's, it's literally an A leads to B leads to C, but being present um, and, and eliminating distractions and and having a mindset, an obsessive mindset of of getting to that next level, you know, and it's very simple in, in sports. You know, you play a season, you get to the playoffs, you get to the payoff, the World Series, the MLS Cup, World Cup, uh, Super Bowl, you know, NBA Finals, whatever it is. Um, that is a process that has to take you know, in the NBA, it takes nine months for that to happen, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it's all about being present and in the moment, but knowing that there's something, that there's, there's, there's a goal out there. There's a goal past what's going on today, but you can't get to that tomorrow without having today. Yeah, yeah. That answers the question, but that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get it. It sounds like you're saying it's kind of like sailing, right? You mm-hmm. you got to be an expert sailor and be really good at sailing. There's yeah. always going to be a destination where you're trying to get to, right. but along the way, you're adjusting and tracking yeah. and zigzagging sure. to get there, right? Yeah, and it doesn't happen by accident. It happens by, by um, repetitive training. It happens by um, being locked in and focused. Um, by keeping your your desire uh, and to to always get better and better and achieve, like you want to, you know, you take the sailing reference. You want to get to that destination quicker next week than you got to it last week. You know, mm-hmm. so you're using whatever techniques or whatever um, whatever you learned from doing it last time, you know, last game or last project or whatever you want to call it. Um, to get to that destination easier and quicker so that you can get to that next destination. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. So I want to, I want to switch gears um, mm-hmm. a little bit and, yeah. and talk about this hall of fame stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> how did that happen? And, yeah. uh, congratulations, first of Thank all, you. but how did that happen and what does it feel like, you know, mm-hmm. and what, and what being inducted into the hall of fame versus not being in there? What is what does that give you other yeah. than just, you know, bragging rights? Well, I never, you know, obviously never started out as a young photographer, even dreaming that I would end up in the hall of fame someplace. I just wanted to get published, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have, I've had a long career. Um, the Naismith basketball hall of fame, um, has an award where they recognize two people every year in the media that have given, um, basically career long or lifetime achievements to the game of basketball and the media world. One is, um, electronic media, which is tends to be a broadcaster and, uh, the great Doris Burke, my dear friend, she got that award this year. It's a Kurt Gowdy award is what it's called. Okay. And I got the award on the print side. I was, um, 
you know, nominated by a committee of peers, um, none of them photographers, I must say, they are writers. And this award has always gone to writers um, on my side, on the print side, uh, except for the time when one photographer, uh, the great Rich Clarkson, who is pretty much the godfather of NCAA basketball photography. I think he's done 50, some uh, 55 final fours or something in his career. Um, he got the award uh, a few years ago, but um, I was given the award this year um, for my contributions to the game of the NBA game. So first NBA centric photographer to receive the Gowdy award. Um, it's, it's close to sort of induction or enshrinement to the hall of fame as you can get and not, you know, lacing them up and actually playing the game yeah. or coaching. Um, so it was extremely, uh, gratifying and humbling. And I was so, uh, I was just taken back. And it's one of those moments in life where you really sort of need to step back. I had to write a speech. So and that took a few months to put together. And I really thought about like what got me here. I mean, what, and what's really almost ironic is the, the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame is located in Springfield, Massachusetts. I went to school at the University of Massachusetts, which is like 12 miles away. Mm-hmm. And my first published basketball picture was in the college paper at UMass. So as Phil Jackson, my great friend would say, this was a truly a full circle life event. Yeah, you know, I'm coming back to really where I started to be honored um, by the game uh, that I, I has made my life. So um, extremely gratifying. I had my whole family. My kids were there, you know, my brothers and my sister and all of my NBA friends and family and colleagues were there. And it, uh, it was great. It was um, a real celebration. And I, I will never forget it. And I'll never forget where I came from. Um, Adam Silver was was incredibly gracious, and uh, there were three of us. Two two gentlemen, uh, Rod Thorne and Rick Welts, were actually enshrined in the Hall of Fame this year. Two executives, yeah. and myself. And he gave a nice uh, reception for us, hosted it, and made a speech. And afterwards, he told the other side. He said, "Well, Eddie, you know, it's been a nice like thirty six year career, but I think your best pictures are in front of you." <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, coming from your boss is a pretty cool thing to say, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it shows a lot of confidence that he still thinks that I'm needed, and uh, and they still put me in front of you know the most important events, and so I'm I'm very grateful for that. That's fantastic, and congratulations again, man. That is that is that is Thank really you. cool, and, and uh, you know I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Yes, it was thrilling for sure. So um, before I want to I want to end this with was just a, a sort of an inside look at the the actual you know feet on the court yeah. shooting an NBA game right how to what's it the, like the process the process yeah, yeah the process mm-hmm. and how that goes but before we do that I want to the this question that's on my mind is like what is it like having Kobe Bryant on speed dial in your phone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and do you, do you get calls from Kobe Bryant and you're like, Oh, it's Kobe. I got to take this real quick. You know? Well, we'll, we'll correspond every once in a while. I see him more often than I thought I would actually, since his retirement, you know, we, we're working on the book together. So we, you know, we're pretty 
connected at the hip during that year and a half period. Um, but I see him, I just saw him two days ago at a Laker event and we chat and you know, when certain things happen with the book, for example, the book uh, just sold out the first printing. I mean, that's just wow. unbelievable. That's great. So, you know, I sent him, I sent him a congrats email and he sent one back to me, you know, yeah. um, and he's, he's such a unique person, uh, and I respect him so much. And just to have him as a friend, not just somebody I collaborated with or, or got to shoot on the court, but that's really the incredible benefit of my job of these relationships, not just with him, but with so many guys that I've, and women too, throughout my career that I've been able to have these sort of lifelong relationships with and friendships. It's yeah. incredible. That's, what, it, that's yeah. what it's all about, right? So, yeah. Okay, let's, let's take it to the court. Right. Yeah. So, so you're on, take me through the process from your, 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 you know, it's time to go out until the time that it's time to share the images with whoever's getting those images. How does that work? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I'll give you the, the kind of aerial view of what we do. Um, we, um, my group, um, consists of three to four, um, one photographer and then two other support people. So it's like four to five of us at every single NBA game. And we are responsible for shooting everything that happens, obviously, on and off the court, you know, at an NBA game. Um, my process involves uh, doing remote cameras in strategic locations all over the court. And you've seen these photos with, you know, shot from the catwalk or shot from through the basket, the, the backboard or from the railing somewhere. So we do six to seven remote cameras every single game. Okay. And I shoot with four cameras in front of me. So we have up to 11, sometimes 12 cameras going at any given game. Wow. It's about a two to two and a half to three hour process to set up these cameras. So my two assistants get there about for a seven thirty game. They get there about two o'clock, sometimes earlier, and start setting this stuff up. Um, every single game it has to be set up and then broken down because we work primarily out of Staples Center and uh, there's a different event every single night at Staples Center. So. Um, we have that all set up. I usually get there about three thirty, four o'clock. Players start arriving. I'm shooting all the, the players arrive in their street clothes, which has become a major um, initiative for the NBA and what these guys are wearing and how they dress. Yeah. Um, shooting pregame stuff, guys warming up, uh, locker room situations, training room. Um, whether it might be a press conference, the coach always speaks, both coaches before the game. Um, the intros. Um, and then tip off. And then, you know, I'm there I'm in my spot under the basket, um, sort of controlling the remote system that are these six or seven cameras on the far side of the court. I control that with an auxiliary button attached to one of my handheld cameras and then shooting all the action that's going on in front of me. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's not just the action. I mean, I had a game last night, a Laker game and there's celebrities there. There's contests going on. There's all kinds of fan experience. Um, I had a numerous requests from the NBA photos office for a particular celebrity or um, all kinds of stuff. We, you know, we, we have to shoot certain things for video games. We have to shoot. Uh, oh man, it's just it's oh, just wow. a laundry list. It's how a long. How many of you are are up there? Is it just you on the? Well, it's my, it's two of us shooting. Okay. I'm on the court. I have another photographer who uh, shoots from an elevated position, so he has more photographer. Mm -hmm. 
a third photographer who's primarily shooting just sponsorship elements for the team and marketing things. So um, very, very busy. So the workflow is such now with digital that most of my cameras are tethered through an Ethernet line, through a high-speed line, back to MBA Photos in Secaucus, New Jersey, where there's an editor receiving my photos in real time. So I'm shooting LeBron dunking. That editor is seeing that photo within three seconds of when I shot it. What? And then the editor is receiving these photos, not just from the camera I'm looking through, but from the remote cameras as well. And they're, they're, they're downloading the photos. They're selecting very quickly the, the, uh, through an, a very precise editing system. They're selecting photos, captioning them, and then sending those off to Getty Images because Getty hosts all of our photos. Mm-hmm. And they, they have the license to, um, to sell and market in the NBA photography that we all produce throughout the NBA. And you have to remember that other games are going on at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, there, there could be nights where there's 12, 13 games going on. Sometimes there's two or three, but you know, when the season is in full swing, um, so there may be three, four five editors receiving photos from different parts of the country and selecting captioning, editing. So we call what the coverage we do as close to live coverage as you could do as a still photographer. Yeah. You no, know, it's not, not live like TV, but still photography, you know, honestly, my photos get posted within five, six minutes of when I shot them. You know, wow. and, uh, so how does, that, how does that feel as a photographer? So, so clearly you're not, mm-hmm. you're not doing any post-processing. The editor's doing no. everything and making sure everything's good to go. Do you have a dialogue at all with the editor? Like, hey, this shot right here, sure. I think this is better than that shot over there. Or is it no, just, have, it's up to I them? Don't have, I don't have time to do that. So I rely on my editor. I have my, my tech, my editor, who's my first assistant, who also is in charge of setting up the system, the camera system that I described. Mm-hmm. Um, he is looking at the feed as it's going back to New Jersey as well. And and I will text him actually during the game, during a timeout. Because sometimes, you know, the editors, they miss things. Yeah. And I'll say, hey, make sure they saw that LeBron dunk or make sure they saw that moment. Because sometimes they're not, they're not really in tune with maybe what's going on at our game, at our game, you know like a matchup or um, if there's a, a, you know, some kind of uh, landmark, you know, like LeBron uh, moved, you know, up the ladder in the scoring chart. Um, so it's very important that they know that, Hey, this is the picture that got him into fourth place or whatever it was, you know? Yeah, and of course, course last second shots are vital, you know, because whatever team won the game from the last second winner, um, they're going to want to post that picture immediately. Mm-hmm. And they get that those photos through us via Getty. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of tentacles out there. There's a lot of uh, chefs that need to be taken care of. It's a process. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that is fantastic. I had no idea that, that, I mean, I knew, Kind of that you guys were. I mean, I knew you guys were sending files digitally. I had no idea that yeah. it was near real time. Oh yeah, Absolutely. and going to someone that's sitting there on standby, you know, and yeah. and making decisions and then sending it off to Getty. That yeah. way, that's amazing. Yeah, sure. Is that is that normal? I mean, this is sports photography, obviously, that we're talking about. But is this is this sort of the way that we're we're that that news organizations are approaching news gathering now oh, generally? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, all of them do it now. I mean, the wire services, AP, Reuters, um, Getty itself, they, they do that. All the, the major newspapers, everyone is doing coverage like that, yes. Um, I mean, we have the high-speed line that goes back, but um, the other organizations are either using Wi-Fi or they have an Ethernet line back in their um in their workspace at the arena stadium, wherever they happen to be. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, okay, here's the, I hate to ask this question, but, but my audience is going to get on me if I don't ask it. What are you shooting with? What's the, what's, what's the gear? Sure. Well, I've been a long time Nikon guy for uh, 30 plus years. I started actually with Canon, but I quickly went to Nikon because they had a higher, uh, flash sync speed back in those days. And I've been a loyal Nikon photographer for a zillion years. And um, right now we're using D5s um, for my handheld cameras. Mm-hmm. I use some D4Ss. And then we use the um, D800, uh, D810, I'm sorry, and the D850 cameras for our remotes. Okay. So uh, they're very reliable, um, incredibly high resolution. Um, they're compact. They're easy to pack and carry. You know, I'm going on the road tomorrow and we pack up the whole thing into five six shipping cases and take the show on the road with us so everything that we do at staples center i can replicate in any arena in the nba wow and one thing to keep in mind is very important uh, for what the way i shoot is that i'm using a a system of, of gigantic strobes in the arena which basically means that when I push my trigger button on my camera, these gigantic strobes go off in the catwalk, just like if I had a flash on my camera. But the difference is, is that I cannot shoot on motor drive. I can only shoot once every four seconds because it takes four seconds for these strobes to recycle their power back up. So I'm not shooting a 12 frame, you know, 12 frames in a second and then picking an image out. Um, And not to, detract from my great friends who do that, you know, in the photojournalism world. But the way I shoot is once every four seconds. And that's the same for all of us throughout the NBA and and the NHL as well, actually, that we're using the strobes. So it's a much more uh, disciplined way of shooting. Um, you got to rely a lot on, uh, well, some, some of it's luck, but Walt, the great Walter Yost says that luck is through careful preparation. Yeah. And I truly believe in that. And, uh, you know, it's a challenging way to shoot, too. You get frustrated because you miss things. You know, you miss a put-back dunk. You miss, miss a block shot. You miss all kinds of stuff because you can't shoot one frame after the next. So you got you to be ready. you got to be locked in. You have to know your equipment backwards and forwards, never thinking twice about what lens should I be using or how should I be composing this image. That all has to be second nature. Yeah. And, and not to mention anticipation, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got one step ahead, but that gets us back full circle, Frederick, to the, the whole mama mentality, because, Perfect. you know, from what I do, just as Kobe would know, you know, what a defense is going to do when he's coming down full steam and he's going to, you know, dunk or whatever he's going to do or pull up and shoot. You know, I have to know, a millisecond before it happens, what's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, I, have to, I don't want to say I have to guess because it all comes from experience. And sometimes I guess, yeah, of course. But I have to also, through my experience, um, anticipate and be one step ahead. Because if I see it happen 
through my two eyes, if I see a dunk happen or whatever, it means I missed it. I missed the picture. Yeah. Because yeah. the camera should actually be clicking at that very instant instead of me seeing it. <laughs> so it's frustrating when I do see something and I, I kick myself. I, Damn, I should have been ahead of that. I should have shot that. Yeah. That's about all about eliminating distractions and really being locked into what you do. I love that. Those are those are word literally words to live by. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Kobe Bryant, the Mamba mentality, how I play. It's available everywhere right now. Everywhere, yeah, yeah. bookstores, but um, really can uh, find it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I apologize, and so does Kobe, for the fact that it might be hard to find right now because the first printing just sold out, yeah. and I think Amazon is kind of getting thin on their supply. But the the publishers promised that they will have enough in time for the holidays. So that's great. Um, if, if you're being broadcasted to other countries, the, the book is now in eight different countries right as we speak. Um, it's uh, in at least in Italian and in Chinese, and it's coming out in Japanese and possibly three or four other languages. So that's super exciting. And uh, uh, I my work can be found on Instagram primarily at, at ADB Photo Inc., Okay. which I hope everyone can follow me. I post photos from my recent work, stuff I did last night or today, and also some of my iconic photography. But I'd also love to give a shout-out to my Legends of Sport platform. Um, I host a podcast, a weekly podcast, called Legends of Sport okay. on Apple Podcasts. And you can uh, also follow our Instagram. Uh, it's at Legends of Sport and also Twitter. Um at LOS Podcast One. Um, we'd have a blog called the Legends of Sport blog. So you can get that at legendsofsport.blog. And it's a week, it's a daily um, This Day in Sports History uh, kind of commentary, and as well as we do a long form piece about th- that week's guest on my podcast. And the podcast is not just NBA centric. I've had. I've had people from sorry the dog is barking. It's okay. I've had people from across the board in sports, um, executives, athletes, um, agents, all kinds of people. So check it out. I think people would really enjoy it. Excellent. Yeah, and I will. I'll link to all of those um, in the both the YouTube description and on right. the blog for the podcast. Thank well. you. Well, great. Well, thank you, Andrew. I, I appreciate this. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, super you. fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for your persistence and, 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 and trying to get us connected, which we finally did, which is great. Wild <laughs> horses, you. my friend. Wild horses. Can Absolutely. <laughs> it's all about obsession. So. Yeah. There you go. Never giving up. <laughs> Never give up. All right, Andrew, you have a great week and a great holiday. I appreciate you coming. Right. Thanks, man. Take care. Speak okay. soon. All right. Take, Take care. This is Twitter.